Greetings, friends, and a warm welcome from the heart of Spurgeon, a podcast dedicated to reading through and studying out the glories of Christ through the sermons of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a man gifted by God to make known Christ in all his sweetness and sufficiency. My name is Jeremy Walker and I'm your host and today we're looking at sermon number 21 in the sequence, still in the new Park Street pulpit, volume 1. The title is Christ's People, Imitators of Him. It was preached in 1855 from Acts chapter 4 and verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marvelled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Now, Spurgeon has a variety of ways that he approaches the introductions to his sermons, but they're often deliberately gripping and engaging, and he begins it here, Behold, what a change divine grace will work in a man, and in how short a time. Now, you'd hope that that would certainly grab the attention of a Christian, Perhaps under God, it might also take the attention of someone who's bothered going to Exeter Hall, which is where he was preaching then, to hear this man speaking. And he launches straight in by talking about the change that grace had accomplished in Peter, changing him from the the, the more uh, cowardly disposition, where when the time, crunch time came, he had uh, deserted his master with curses to the fact that now he's with John, boldly declaring that salvation is in Christ and in Christ only, the crucified and risen Saviour. And Spurgeon wants us to be like John, like Peter, to demonstrate that boldness that comes from being with Jesus Christ. He wants people to perceive that you are disciples of the Holy Son of God by the evidence that you have been with the Lord Jesus. Now, Spurgeon is a simple preacher in many respects. His structures tend to be very straightforward, and so it is here. He has four points, what a Christian should be, when he should be so, why he should be so, and how he can be so. And he's able to turn those into either statements or questions as he needs to do so. So, first of all, he's going to address what a believer should be, and he gives us a short answer. A Christian should be a striking likeness of Jesus Christ. He should be someone who has evidently been with him, has been taught by him, has caught the very idea, he says, of the holy man of Nazareth and expands it out into his very life and everyday actions. Now, remember that Spurgeon, in his context, often has to deal with particular uh, aberrations of doctrine and practice. Amongst those would have been uh, Arminianism on the one hand, or hyper-Calvinism on the other. And here he emphasises quite properly and carefully that a believer obeys God, not because the law is binding upon them, but because the gospel constrains them. Now, they obey the the law of God, but they do so as those who've been redeemed by blood divine, 
having been purchased by Jesus Christ, are more bound to keep his commands than they would have been if they were under the law. To use the imagery of the Exodus in the Old Testament, God's people were redeemed in order to have the freedom to obey. And so it is in the New Covenant in a heightened sense. We are freed from the bondage of sin in order that we may obey God as Christ did in all things. And that's the likeness to Christ. That's our conformity to Christ that Spurgeon is pursuing and encouraging here. Now, he recognises that that's never going to be perfect in this life. But he says that though perfection is out of our reach, it should not diminish the ardour of our desire after it, our eager appetite to be like Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? Well, First of all, a Christian should be like Christ in his boldness. And Spurgeon probably has his tongue in his cheek when he says that this is a virtue nowadays called impudence, but the grace is equally valuable by whatever name it may be called. That, I suggest to you, is the statement of a young preacher who has often been called impudent and is using this as an opportunity to explain his courage. He wants people to be very valiant for God. So that when they see the boldness of the Christian, it's clear that they have been with Jesus, that they have learned of him with regard not least to doctrine, that the the statement of sovereign grace that was characteristic of Christ, characteristic of Spurgeon and other preachers like him, that they will preach those truths without shame. But Spurgeon is wise enough to recognise that boldness can become brashness. And so he says we must also amalgamate with our boldness the loveliness of Jesus' disposition. If courage is the brass, love must be the gold. And he again quite tellingly talks about the churches with crab tree Christians in them who have mixed such a vast amount of vinegar and such a tremendous quantity of gall in their constitutions that they can scarcely speak one good word to you. There are people who are like isolated icebergs. No one cares to go near them. They float about on the sea of forgetfulness until at last they are melted and gone. And while you might instinctively say, oh, yeah, I know people like that in my congregation, let me suggest that the great concern is that I not be like that in my congregation, that I not be a vinegary, spiky, cold Christian who we are glad to remain at a distance from. And that leads on to humility, a deep and sincere humility, not a cringing uh, disposition, not Uh, carping and bowing before people, but rather a, a consciousness that we have been truly blessed, that we are not going to lift ourselves up and look down our noses at others. He says we ought to forget caste and degree and rank when we come into Christ's church, that Christ was humble. He stooped to do anything which might serve others. And that's the disposition for a true saint. And then perhaps he's got more in his notes 
uh, but he's running out of time already in, in terms of getting through this material. And so he says, well, you can think of anything else as well as I can. You can uh, paint Christ Jesus because you've got the, the portrait in all its fullness there in the word of God. There's a little encouragement, a nudge there. Spurgeon expects us to be responsible in seeking these things out for ourselves from the scriptures. But he's got to move on. Now, when should Christians be like this? And he asks the general question, is there any time when you can strip off your regimentals, when you can get out of your military uniform and be like others? No. No, the basic principle is that in every place the Christian should be what he professes to be. And he identifies four spheres in particular where that needs to be true. First of all, we must imitate Christ in public. Secondly, we must imitate Christ in the church. Thirdly, we must make sure above all that we have religion in our houses, our homes. And finally, we must imitate the Lord Christ in secret. So in every part of life that we need to uh, be manifestly before men what we claim to be, that when we're in the church of Jesus Christ, that that kindness, that courage, that humility, that loveliness that is in the Lord Jesus, that needs to be seen in the church so that there is none of this wrestling for preeminence at home. That's where the real test so often is. Our domestic environment is so often the place in which our Christianity stands or falls between, before our, our children, our husbands or wives, our friends, our, Spurgeon talks about servants, not a problem I imagine for too many of us, but perhaps our employees, we might say, if we have that kind of responsibility or the people for whom we have some management oversight. He says, when you're at home, you tend to take the mask off and men are what they seem. And then in secret, and how telling that is, take care of your secret life. Let it be such that you will not be ashamed to read at the last great day your inner life is written in the book of God and it shall one day be opened before you. And perhaps he puts this last because it can be much easier to wear the hypocrite's mask in public and at church and to some extent even to maintain it at home. But what are we when we are alone? What a man is, I think it was John Owen who said, when he's on his knees before God, that's what he really is and nothing else. So this is the question. And the issue of private religion, a secret, the secret life is so often proven, says Spurgeon, in the matter of private prayer. Are we given to private devotion? Are we pleading with God in secret? Because that's really what demonstrates our closeness to and likeness to Jesus Christ. The third question then, and again, you, you get the, the lovely simplicity of this as you work your way through it, the, uh, the what, and then the when, and then the why, and then the how. And so we come on to why should Christians imitate Christ? And again, you've got these subheadings. Uh, they're often picked out in the original text in italics, but you love this. I hope you do. I, I hope you love this sense of orderliness that develops 
these hooks again that Spurgeon hangs his thoughts upon so that both he and we can follow along. It's still a good lesson for any preacher to have this uh, straightforward structure. Even if you don't have the obvious headings and subheadings of a Spurgeon, nevertheless to have this clear skeleton so that the, the flesh is going on those particular bones. Why then should Christians imitate Christ? Firstly, for their own sake, for their for the, the, the credibility of their, their own souls, for their own healthful state, if they wish to be kept from sin, if they want to enjoy communion with Jesus Christ, holy and happy, if they'd be lifted up above cares and troubles, let them imitate Christ. He's saying that this path of principled obedience is the true path of joy and delight. And when by the power of God's spirit, you are enabled to walk with Christ in his very footsteps, you are most happy and most known, not just by others, but by yourself to be a true son of God. The second reason why you should imitate Christ for the sake of religion, of true religion. Ah, he says, poor religion. Thou hast been sorely shot at by cruel foes, but thou hast not been wounded one half so much by them as by their friends. None have hurt thee, O Christianity, so much as those who profess to be thy followers. And I think any one of us would say that nothing has really changed. Nothing so much drags down Christianity in the eyes of the world than many of those who call themselves Christians and clearly are not. And so he's saying if we really want to honour Christ, then for the sake of true Christianity, for the sake of our religion, for the sake of the church of Jesus Christ, we need to make clear by our conduct what real Christianity is and does. Let but men see, he says, that our conduct is superior to others, then they will believe there is something in our religion. But if they see us quite the contrary to what we avow, what will they say? These religious people are no better than others. Why should we go among them? And they say quite rightly. So if we want to honour Christ and bring a luster to his church, then for the sake of our religion, true Christianity, we must imitate Jesus Christ. But finally, and bringing it now into its strongest form, he says, it is simply for Christ's sake that we should endeavour to be like him. And here again, that holy imagination and that earnestness and that uh, personal touch comes to the fore. Could I but fetch the dying Jesus here and let him speak to you? And Spurgeon wants you to, to see with eyes of faith He's, he's doing something like Paul. He's placarding Christ crucified before us. He wants us, as it were, to see the hands of Christ pierced with his wounded side, to see the, the bones that were pulled apart for, for the sake of his people, to see the eyes that gushed with tears and to look into them, to note the, the head that was thorn-crowned and the cheeks that were bruised and the hair that was plucked. And he wants us to look at a dying saviour and ask whether or not for his sake we are ready to follow after him. We we're called by the preciousness, by the beauty, the, 
the excellence of Christ, by all the the, the power that is in that passion of our Lord, the bleeding lamb. And he's asking, when you look at what Christ has done for you, how can you not for his sake, for his glory, and because of his purchase of your soul, if you love him, will you not keep his commandments? It's the mighty reason of love and affection. Gratitude demands obedience. Be with Christ in your your soul as you contemplate him at Calvary, and it will be clear that you have been with him when his sacrifice binds your heart to himself. Now, you might read that and perhaps you shrug it off, but notice where Spurgeon begins his fourth point. Ah, then ye wept, and I perceive ye felt the force of pity, and some of you are inquiring, how can I imitate him? Now, again, you might say, well, I can I can see that there's some feeling there when he speaks, but we need to try, if we can, to put ourselves in the pew, if you like, when Spurgeon is so preaching from the pulpit. This is not a man who's just describing something at a distance. This is religion known and felt. Spurgeon himself would have had his heart pulled out toward Christ when he spoke like this, and it moved the congregation to tears as they felt the force of pity, and it made them ask the question, how then can I be a servant of this Christ? How can I show that I have been with him? And there's the force of Spurgeon's ministry, that under the power of the Holy Spirit, these pictures that he paints, these truths that he portrays, they grip the soul of the people who are hearing him. And that's more of what we need in our own day. So how then can we imitate Christ? Firstly, if you're going to follow Christ as an example, then you need Christ as a redeemer. And Spurgeon says a lot of people like to think of Christ as a good model for the way that we live, an excellent and admirable man. But you cannot follow him unless he is your saviour. Until he's your mediator, your substitutionary sacrifice, it doesn't matter what you imagine yourself to be, you cannot be a true disciple of Christ and you cannot follow him in the way that you must unless you are a true Christian. You do not obey to become a believer. You obey because Christ has drawn you to himself. You do not serve in order to be saved. Having been saved, you serve. And so the first thing you must do is come to this crucified Redeemer. Trust in him because you cannot mould your life to his pattern until you have had his spirit. And then once you have come to Christ, once you know that life that is in him, in you, Spurgeon says, study Christ's character. He says, what a tragedy that the Bible has become an almost obsolete book, even with some Christians. I think Spurgeon again would say, if all you're reading is my sermons, drop the sermons and pick up your Bible. 
It's when you look at him, as you look at him, for example, on the pages of the Gospels, that you should see his character and say, that's the model that I want to follow. That's the example that as a true believer, I will set before me. And having studied the character, having identified that glorious and holy pattern in the next place, correct your poor copy every day. He says, if if Christ is the, the example of the handwriting, then when you write out your copy, it's it's got blots and splotches and spelling mistakes. And so what do you do? At the end of the day, you go over your own writings. And if you find anything faulty, you make a mark in the margin so that tomorrow you may not make the same mistake again. Note your faults one by one so that you may better avoid them. And lastly, the best advice he can give, seek more of the Spirit of God, for this is the way to become Christ-like. We need to pray that God will work in us. No matter how much force we exert, however much strength we think we have, unless the iron is soft, it will not bear the, the impress of the hammer's blows. So it needs to be made warm. And it's the, the fire of the Holy Spirit that melts these hard hearts so that the wax, uh, it can be turned like wax to the seal and fashioned into the image of Jesus Christ. And then he concludes, Oh, my brothers, what can I say now to enforce my text? And you wonder, is that not what you've been doing all the way along? But he says, take this, that if you are like Christ on earth, you shall be like him in heaven. And here's this this great passionate plea, this entreaty, this weight of eternity that he now brings to bear. In one sense, the whole sermon has been application. Those those what's and why's and how's and th- those those are all practical questions. But here's the the clincher. Here he is driving it home. To be like Christ is to enter heaven. To be unlike Christ is to descend to hell. And he sends us away with a test. My brothers, you can test yourself by Christ. If you are like Christ, you are of Christ and shall be with Christ. If you are unlike him, you have no portion in the great inheritance. And again, how wisely Spurgeon shows himself able to preach to the different people who are in front of him. So that even when he has these particular applications insisting upon the fact that as Christians, we should show that we have been with Jesus, that he does not neglect those who do not yet know our Saviour, but that he calls to them also and he leaves them and God's people with this great concern. Am I like Christ? Then if I am, I belong to him and I have this hope to come. But if I am not, then I am cast out at this time. And this is the point, not that I then despair that I am not yet like Christ, but that it brings me to seek to be a partaker of the inheritance of the saints in light to the praise of his grace. What a wonderful thought that the holding up of the glories 
and the privileges of being in Christ Jesus should stir up this kind of holy jealousy in those who are still dead in their trespasses and sins, that God, by his Spirit, should draw them to Christ, put them in Christ, and make them with us more and more like Christ. May that be the effect of this sermon on our hearts. My name is Jeremy Walker, and this is a Media Gratii production. I hope you've enjoyed From the Heart of Spurgeon. For more information and to read along with us week by week, follow us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon. That's Twitter at Reading Spurgeon.